0: I want to invite you uh, to turn with me um, in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter, particularly chapter 2, and in particular verses 18 to 25. As you guys uh, may know, we are walking our way through this ancient letter. Um, the Apostle Peter writes to a group of Christians that are scattered really all throughout a certain region of the Roman world, most likely what is in modern day Turkey today. Um, these Christians are an embattled community. They're struggling, they're suffering. And his letter is addressed to them to help them um, better understand and take hold of this living hope that they have in Jesus. And when you make a commitment to preach through books of the Bible, you know it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it for the preacher because I actually know each week what I'm gonna preach the next week. But that doesn't mean that it's easy because this passage in particular is going to be a hard one to explain. So I want to ask for your prayers as um, I try to explain a couple of difficult things in this passage. Um, And and I'm really thankful that you're the kind of church that I can say that to you and uh, seek your prayers. So I'm going to read these words carefully and slowly, and then we will get into them together. Would you listen closely to these words from the Apostle Peter? Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, at the reading of your word, we respond in thanksgiving. Lord, as an acknowledgement that at Grace Fellowship here tonight, we believe that we don't live by bread alone, but instead, as your people, we have to live. We have to gain nourishment. We have to gain sustenance from you, O oh Lord, and from the words that come from your mouth. So we ask in the power of your spirit that you would now do the thing that only you can do. Lord, would you take these difficult words in your word? Lord, would you take the words that I prepared and would you use these words to shine light in our hearts? And Lord, more than anything, we pray to give us a sense of that living hope that we have in Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you guys who know me well know of my affection for 500 or more year-old prayers. I love prayers that Christians have prayed for centuries. And there's a set of prayers that Christians have prayed for centuries that were written and compiled and edited together, particularly in England, roughly the 1500s. They're housed in this book that some of you might be familiar with called the Book of Common Prayer. There's an entire kind of stream of the Christian tradition that uses this particular book as the prayer and worship book of their churches. And there's one particular prayer. It's it's almost just a a line that's just sort of thrown in there on the side, particularly to be prayed at a wedding. But that's neither here nor there for tonight. But in this prayer to be prayed at a wedding, um, it it says something I think is so important for understanding the Christian life. It's something that you've probably heard me say or allude to multiple times. And I think it's a particularly, particularly good way to understand what Peter is getting at in this text. So maybe I should tell you what the prayer is. The prayer goes like this. Lord, we thank you that you have made the way of the cross to be the way of life. You have made the way of the cross. It's a painful, difficult thing. You have made the way of the cross to be the way of life. What this prayer is getting at is that the cross is more than something Jesus did to save us from our sins, to purchase us and redeem us from the power of the devil, to defeat the works of evil and sin and darkness. Now the cross is all those things and more but the cross is also a pattern for Christian living. In other words, the cross is more than just something that Jesus did. It's also a way of life that you and I are called to take up again and again and again and again. I think this is a helpful way to think of our text that I just read for you. And before we get into it, I want to remind you of this particular section of 1 Peter. If you remember, Peter is writing to a group of struggling Christians in towns and villages and in regions of the Roman world, places like Pontus and Bithynia and Galatia and Cappadocia. And these Christians are struggling and they're suffering. And he's coming to them with this letter, with this message that in spite of their pain and struggle and suffering, he's coming to them, telling them that they actually, despite how things look in their life, they actually possess this living hope in Jesus, this living, beating, breathing, full, rich, and deep hope in Christ. have a living hope. And he tells them that as part of this living hope, they are God's particular people. They are God's people, a holy people, a set-apart people, a means and a channel by which God will bring blessing to their world. So there are people with a living hope, and they are particular people with a particular calling. And of course, Peter doesn't want this to just stay in the realm of ideas. You know, abstract ideas. You guys know how some of the truths of our faith can kind of tend to stay abstract a little bit. They're sort of hard to understand. Peter wants these ideas to move from abstract to something very real, concrete, and livable, like tomorrow for his hearers. And as a part of that, he begins to give them instructions. So last week, we learned that Peter tells them to be generally submissive and cooperative with the secular government. Not because the secular government is particularly thoughtful, not because the secular government is particularly, um, I don't know, good at the things that they do, not because the secular government is promoting godliness, not for any of those reasons. But by being submissive and cooperative, that would help, it would help silence the accusation that the Christians were really just a bunch of insurrectionists. The Christians worshiped Jesus as Lord. The Romans worshiped Caesar as Lord. The Christians were sometimes falsely accused of being insurrectionists. And Peter encourages them to be submissive in order to quiet that accusation. I also mentioned for thousands of years, Christians have Reflect on that instruction and have come to see that when we're generally cooperative and submissive to government leaders, it gives us the moral authority to make the right stands when the time is right. So he begins by talking about the relationship of the Christian to the secular government. And then in today's text, he moves to the household. In particular, if you heard me read it, Peter is going to give instructions to household servants. He's giving instructions to household servants and the rest of us, the rest of the hearers get to listen in to these instructions. And it's really important that we listen in to the instruction that he gives to household servants because by the end of the text, this passage for tonight, he expands those instructions and zooms out a little bit and says something important to every Christian. And he's going to say to them, the way of the cross is the way of life. So it's instructions to household servants, but it becomes instructions for all of us tonight. All this is introduction, by the way. That should make you nervous. Now I've heard that there are some of you that are details in structure kind of people, like you like clarity. I've heard of you people. Well, tonight's your night because Peter gives very clear, really linear structured instructions in this text. I'm gonna explain to you how it's going to go. First of all, he's going to give them a call. He's gonna explain that call, a charge, an exhortation, a call. And then he's going to give them the reasons why. So a call, and then reasons why. And then thirdly, he's going to point them to where they will gain the strength to be faithful to the call. So if you're making notes, I would write the call, I'd skip down. I would write the reasons why, and I'd skip down. And then I'd say the strength. But in all of these things, Peter is trying to get across this main idea, and it's that the Christ's suffering transforms the Christian's suffering. Christ's suffering transforms the Christian's suffering. In other words, not a moment of suffering is wasted. That suffering has meaning, that it has purpose. That God uses it. So Christ's suffering transforms the Christian's suffering. Let's take it one piece at a time. First of all, look with me at verse 18 at the call. Verse 18, servants, be subject. Other words we could put in for be subject would be come under, submit to, yield to, cooperate with, Follow the lead of, maybe even so strong as obey. Be subject, come under, submit to, yield, cooperate with, follow the lead of, obey your masters with all respect. This is where it gets tough. Not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. other words you could put in there for the unjust would be the unreasonable, or, more importantly, the crooked. The crooked. Now let's talk about this for a second. Servants. What Peter most likely has in mind here is household servants. Now, these household servants, many of them would be slaves. This is where I need to explain a few things about servitude in the Greek and Roman world. See, when we read the New Testament, we come across in Paul's language, he'll often give instructions to slaves. Here, Peter's narrowing that to more like household servants. He, he gives the instructions to servants. In our minds, we might automatically think of slavery as it was practiced in the American South in plantations. And that wouldn't be quite right because slavery in the Greek and Roman world was different than that. Now, to say it was different than that does not mean that it was a good thing. It just means it was different. So, for example, in Roman society... You know, you really had three classes of people. You had the nobility or you had the, the Roman citizen who had money and privilege. That was one class of people. The second class of people would be these, what were sometimes called freedmen or freedwomen. These are people who've completed a term of service and now have freedom. They'd be something like what we consider something like a, a middle class to lower middle class kind of citizen. And then this whole entire class of people were often called something on the spectrum of slaves to household servants to um, service workers to minimum minimum wage workers to what we might just consider just, just general paid laborer kind of work. Now, each of these servants, slaves, service workers, of course, their situation would be very different according to the household that they served, according to the kind of master of that house and that person's moral character, as we kind of see here. Their situation might be different in different regions based on what the governors would permit, what the provincial authorities would permit, You know, it's it's really interesting that if you could a New Testament scholar explains it like this. If you could think of it like this, everything that in our world, electricity, gas, or computers do was accomplished in their world by this class of people, this third class of people. Their world would have been unimaginable without this entire class of people but many of these people were trapped in this situation. Many of these people suffered greatly under this situation. There was a dark side to this system. There's a place that we can read in sort of ancient history where the Romans thought about making this class of people, this this servant, uh, service worker class of people, wear a a special clothing to identify themselves in public, but the Romans, the Romans realized that if we did that, they would realize how many of them that there were. And then they feared, it was a, a fear of Roman authorities that the slaves would eventually revolt and overthrow society. So it's into all of those things that Peter is speaking. And, and listen to his instructions. Be subject and not just to the good ones and the gentle ones, but also to the unjust. Now, the fuller witness of the New Testament, the fuller witness of the Scriptures, would teach us that Peter's not advocating for turning a blind eye to wickedness and injustice. That's that's not what he's doing. Instead, Peter is offering immediate pastoral advice. These people are going to tomorrow go to work and be struggling and they need to know how they're supposed to live. They have no recourse to change their situation. They have no ability to kind of unionize to get better working conditions. He wants to give them pastoral advice for how to live tomorrow. And he tells them to be subject, to come under the authority to yield to, to cooperate with their master's not just the good, but also the unjust. Which leads us to the second part of this sermon, why? Why should they do that? That's hard. Why? Verse 19, Peter explains, take a look with me. For this is a gracious thing, When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So in these two verses, more than once, Peter gives the reasons why. And the reasons why are simply, it's a gracious thing. It is a gracious thing. What does he mean? There's a few things that he likely means. First of all, he means, generally speaking, that to take on an attitude of humility, even with an unjust, kind of scoundrel, crooked master, to be faithful and obedient would please God. Look at verse 19, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter has in mind the, the Christian who is a servant and he's under a, or he or she is under a, a crooked master and they endure that, mindful of God. They think to themselves, they wake up in the morning and they think, Lord, I'm going to be mindful of you today and endure these struggles it's a gracious thing. Peter just means it, it pleases God. There's a second thing Peter likely means, and it has to do with the idea that it displays God's grace. So if the, if the servant suffers unjustly, somehow it puts on display the truth about Christ and the way in which he suffered unjustly. Somehow, in the servant's obedience and faithfulness and posture, people will gain a better picture of Jesus. It's like Peter imagines the man or woman who is a servant, and they're suffering unjustly but perhaps this man or woman has been explaining to the other servants in the household about Miss Jesus and trying to explain how Jesus came in human skin to suffer for humanity. And it's like it gives that servant in that moment an ability to say, have you seen what's been happening with me? It's kind of like that. Somehow their suffering gives a picture and a display of Christ. It's a gracious thing, maybe a third thing that peter means is that in those moments when the servant is enduring that god gives grace so that they can endure so the call is to submit to and come under and yield to masters, even unjust ones. The reasons why is because it pleases God. It puts on display the work of Christ and that God gives grace for that endurance. But it still leads to this third part of the sermon. Where will they get the strength to be faithful underneath this again and again and again and again? Now, I want to say a little bit more about this later, but some of you go to situations, perhaps even tomorrow, where you're going to be asked to be faithful underneath hard circumstances. Where will you gain the strength to live this way? Well, in Peter's mind, strength will be given from Christ's very example. Look at verse 21 For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. See, at this point, Peter begins to use imagery of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about. Peter's letting the hearer know that the suffering servant who would come from Isaiah 53 is our Lord Jesus. And look at the ways in which he endured suffering. And in this section, Peter begins to actually zoom out, and it's now like he's not just talking to the household worker, but he's talking about our call to take up the way of Jesus. He's talking to our call as Christians for the way of the cross to be our very way of life. Look at the way that Peter does this. Look at with me again in verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Peter says, Christ did this. He suffered for you. And think of all the blessings that you have received from Christ's suffering. Verse 21 again, for this to you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. He's saying Christ did this and look at his example he has given you a pattern for what it would mean to suffer faithfully. Now, the word here is actually a word from like, um, from like elementary school, actually. When Peter says, leaving you an example, the word is like um, a child who would trace letters. So our little girl, Millie, our three-year-old Millie, um, she wanted to learn to write her own name. But of course, she couldn't do that. So Mandy, in her genius, decided to write Millie's name in pencil with little dotted lines at the top of the page. And Mandy said to Millie, all right, now you have an example, and you can trace your name. So Millie got really excited about this. And she sat down, and she like, squinted her eyes, and she brushed her hair back, and she's left-handed, so I can't really act that out right now. But she's left-handed. It's this cutest thing that she's left-handed, by the way. And she tilts her page, and she begins to stick her tongue out like this and begins to look at the letter with her tongue out and her mouth moving. And she traces it out. And what Peter's literally saying is that for you and I as Christians, our life is about tracing out the very suffering of Jesus. It's about enduring faithfully according to the example that's been left for us. Go verse twenty-two. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Have you ever noticed when you read the stories of Jesus on the cross and in his trial scenes, have you ever wondered or have you ever just noticed and have you ever wondered at the way in which he spat upon and slapped and made fun of and mocked and he just keeps his mouth shut? He just speaks the truth. Why did Jesus do that? Because he entrusted himself to God to be the one who judges justly. What Peter's saying is Christ did this and you also can entrust justice to God. Some of you are in situations where you're being treated wrongly. And what Peter is saying to you tonight is that you can trust that you have a God who will leave no wrong. He'll write all of them. He'll write every one of them, every single one, all of them. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's saying, Look at what Christ did. And because of what Christ did, you've been made free, you've been healed, you've been brought home. And what Peter is saying here is every single thing that Christ brought to you, every single thing that Christ brought to you in his sufferings, you have the opportunity to actually bring to others when you suffer faithfully. What Peter is saying here is that he has made the way of the cross to be the way of life. And I know that that this is a lot. So I want to end tonight by giving you three illustrations that I think might help you get your mind and heart and soul around what this could look like. Illustration number one. So I know someone, a friend. um, This is not someone you know. It's not someone at Grace Fellowship. Uh, They work in another state. And this friend was telling me kind of the way it goes in their workplace. And the way it goes essentially is that this friend of mine has to travel for these work meetings and these work events. And it's just kind of understood at these work meetings, at these work events, it's understood that after the work meeting, you go out, you drink a little too much. The festivities then... um, kind of travel to hotel rooms. And if you're willing to play that game in that work environment, then that is the way you climb the ladder within that company. And this friend has been refusing to play that game under that crooked leadership, if you will, and this friend has been denied promotion after promotion, after promotion, after promotion every single time for it. And what, that, what this text says to that friend of mine or maybe one of you, is that when you endure faithfully, that in that moment, as painful as it is, that God's smile is yours. And there comes a point with knowing that God's smile is yours, that that becomes enough for you to endure a whole lot of things. Do you know what I mean? To expand it beyond kind of a workplace scenario. Um, I have a friend, this is not someone you know, live in another state. This friend of mine, um, her brother was diagnosed with cancer. And this isn't a workplace scenario in the way in which Peter's talking, but if you expand to what Peter's saying more generally about suffering, you would know that a diagnosis like that seems deeply wrong and unfair. And this particular friend of mine, or at least her brother, said that it was these exact words from Peter that got him through. knowing that somehow in enduring suffering, chronic illness is a unique kind of injustice, isn't it? That enduring through that suffering, he knew, he knew, he knew that he was gaining a friendship with Jesus. He was gaining grace to endure it. Doesn't mean it made that journey easy, but it did make it bearable for him. Wonder if you know what I mean? I have a few other friends. Some of them you may know, but they endure such supernatural hardship again and again and again and again, like things you just can't make up, and it's wrong. But what this text teaches is that there's hope. That there's hope, not only because they are in the best possible company, the Lord Jesus himself, but it means that their suffering is not wasted, that it's used by God to display something of Christ to others. This text teaches that there's a living, beating hope that one day the same Jesus who suffers in this way as described in this text, will one day return and the scriptures teach that sin and sorrow will be no more. They will wipe every tear away. You know, I cannot possibly know the kind of sorrows and struggles and injustices and wrongs that you face and that you'll face tomorrow. But what I do know is that in Jesus... You have a living, beating, breathing hope. Let's pray. Lord, these are easier things to talk about from a platform than to live tomorrow. We acknowledge that. Lord, to the things that you have called us to that seem unfair and unjust, Lord, I pray that you would teach us the wisdom of endurance. Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it means to take hold of a living hope. Lord, that you give us great confidence in this example that you provide for us, Lord Jesus, in your very own person and work. So we ask that you'd help us in these things, we pray. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.